This is Shack Talk, presented by Eskimo Ice Fishing Gear and hosted by Kyle Agri and Anthony Kleinwachter. Turn up your speakers, grab your gear, and hit the ice with us as we talk ice fishing. Come on in and grab a bucket. We are talking ice fishing. Kyle Agri and Anthony Kleinwachter here. We are your hosts, and this is Shack Talk Ice Fishing Podcast. Anthony, it's it's always great to be back. You know, we, we get a couple of weeks in between our episodes here, and it seems like those two weeks fill up with a whole lot of uh, winter ice fishing fun. We're, we're just trucking through the season. Here we are. We're darn near into the middle of February. Uh, I know that folks that are listening to this in Minnesota, I mean, they've only got a couple of weeks to go inland in terms of the, the state waters of walleye season. Of course, they can continue to go until ice out it into spring chasing panfish. But, you know, all these little milestones throughout the season, it's going by fast. It, it feels like the winter's gone by slow. We've, we've had some kind of nasty weather in our neck of the woods. But, man, in terms of the ice fishing season, it's flying. Yeah, absolutely. I think dealing with the weather and the storms and everything – you know, it's kind of limited some of those opportunities. And I feel like I've probably left a little bit of ice fishing time on the table. I haven't been able to get out as much as I wanted to, but I'm really hoping that we get the the benefit of the flip side of that. We get some nice weather, some stable weather here the rest of the season. And hopefully we got a long late ice season. I know that's my favorite time of the year to get out. You mentioned, you know, some of the inland species close, but there's all the different species between panfish and burbot and tulabies and, you know, late ice pike in some of those areas where you can target them. I, I'm looking forward to that and, you know, having fun out on the ice. Uh, what do you got up your sleeve or what have you been up to the last couple of weeks? You know, um, I'm with you in terms of the stable weather thing. Just listening to one of our local meteorologists explain the La Nina weather pattern, the climate pattern that this winter has brought. And and really, that explains a lot of the Alberta clippers, the, the frontal systems we've seemed to have two or three times a week. And, and the stability there has not been there. And I'm just looking forward to that. Um, of course, it's been a busy winter. Things have been great. When many of you are listening to this podcast, I am going to be hopefully uh, getting across the Canadian border and making a trip to Big Windy. We're planning a Brewer Agri Outdoors crew trip up there, President's Day weekend, which would be the weekend after this podcast launches. Um, I got to be honest, you know, I was up there in October, open water, which was great to kind of just touch on the appetite a little bit, but I am... I am absolutely, I can't wait to get up there on the ice. And um, I'm hoping that for our group, everything goes as we're planning and we're able to get out, get across that border and and just start setting the hook on some of those greenbacks. That's going to be a, an, an absolute trip that we've waited two years to make. And and it's uh, it's been a long time coming and hopefully it's going to kind of come to fruition. How about you? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a little jealous. I, I'm looking to getting up to Big Windy too, but... Uh, I had kind of the same thing. Uh, you know, we just got back. We had a, a year in the making for our trip. Uh, we were uh, headed out to Fort Peck and whoa, whoa, uh, got whoa, into. Whoa, whoa. Anthony, let's um, let's put the brakes on for just a second because I know you had a great trip out to Fort Peck. But for our listeners, let's just uh, let's slow it down. Let's keep the suspense building here because you know this episode we're actually going to focus on that trip to Fort Peck, uh, you and the rest of the, the Fish Addictions crew, uh, a good number of you guys 
made a trip out to Fort Peck in Montana, and and we're going to focus on that. This is going to be kind of a fun, kind of a fun episode, Anthony, because you're going to be on the other side of the table here for this one. You're going to be one of the one of the guests. You're not a guest; you're a host, but you're going to play that dual role today for the podcast. And Jim Richter, Jim is uh, another uh, Fish Addictions member, team member. Uh, he's going to join us in just a couple of minutes. Here, we'll bring him on, and and we're going to let you guys talk about Fort Peck. But until then, I don't want to. I don't want to start jumping into it. We got to get Jim on here on board and and on the air. All right, that sounds good, Kyle. Uh, all right, all right. So, folks, um, let's just not waste any more time, Anthony, because you know we were right there, and and we're going to do it. Let's uh, let's take a really quick break. We'll bring Jim on. Jim Richter of Fish Addictions, and we're going to just jump right in and let you guys tell some fish stories. Sounds good. And as we mentioned in the the intro, I'd like to uh, welcome a good friend of mine, fellow Eskimo pro staffer and uh, Fish Addictions uh, accomplice i would say with our uh, adventures that we go on um i'd like to welcome jim richter to the podcast jim how's it going tonight uh doing well how's it going over there doing well doing well we uh we talked a little bit about it in the intro and i know kyle cut me off because he wanted to save all of it all the good juicy details for uh this segment of the podcast but uh wanted to welcome you to the show help uh help me kind of retell the story and the the adventure we kind of just went on over at uh, Fort Peck uh for those of you who are listening um and maybe don't know Jim or recognize the name um as i mentioned part of the Eskimo staff and the fish addictions team Jim uh tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, then we'll get into the the whole story of uh heading out to Fort Peck to chase those elusive lake trout yeah, so uh, I live in Grand Forks. I work for the city of Grand Forks, uh, surveyor, engineer, uh, kind of a hybrid hybrid type of a guy, um, more of an outdoor cat than one of them indoor dudes, uh, which lends itself to my uh, hunting and fishing activities. And and uh, it's, a, it's a pretty good gig, and it allows me to go on such adventures like we just came back from. So now you guys were both on this trip, and – that's what's going to make the rest of this podcast so cool is that, um, Anthony, you already know the story. And we're going to hear it from both of you guys' perspective and, and kind of how things played out. Um, you guys wanted to go on this trip last year, from what I understand. Things didn't work out. What was kind of the the premise for holding you back last year and, and pushing you into this ice season? Well, so last year um, – we uh, we had the plan to go and watching reports and talking to talking to the guys at the marina there, and it just got to be a point in the spring where uh, it just didn't feel like it was going to be safe enough for us to actually pull it off. And I mean, safety is is kind of a, a big thing when you're when you're playing this game, and uh, we wanted to be smart about it, so we just called an audible uh, the day I think the morning of. Actually, we were supposed to leave, and we just said, uh, "To heck with it! Let's go! Let's go up to Lake of the Woods and do the pike thing." And and uh, it ended up being the right decision, um, and even even more of a right decision with the number of uh, giant pike that came up. 
And uh, I guess I had a, I had a blast. I had I might I don't know what that fish was in the middle of the night, but that thing felt like thirty. But I was tired enough to not bring a tape. <laughs> While I was uh, choked on a choked on like a twelve inch bait, and uh, that was uh, that ended up being the right decision. And uh, and uh, I was happy that we did it. And uh, fast forward to July when we went out for a, a summer adventure which was, uh, I don't know if Anthony's told that story or not, but that was a, that was a hell of a good time. So you, went out, really good time. you went out in the boats in July and, and were you targeting the same fish, the same species, the lake trout and stuff, or were you after something else? No, it was uh, specifically a lake trout game. Uh, we, we had uh, three and a half days, uh, including travel time and uh, some tents and some coolers and, and a boat and said, let's go. And that's, that's what we did. It was 8,000 degrees out, felt like, and with no wind. And every single fly in Montana found us, I, I believe. I don't know how you felt about that, Amp, but I know I uh, was, uh, my ankles were a lot thicker when I got home from all the fly bites. Yeah, I know, uh, you know, we'll get into the story of this season. But like Jim mentioned, uh, you know, last year, Fort Peck Reservoir is a unique body of water that doesn't get a lot of thick ice. Um, it's really susceptible to wind and warm temperatures and cracks and pressure ridges. And so that's that was really the concern that we had last year. And we pulled the pin when we found out that the, the lake was starting to be unsafe. And, you know, we made the right decision there. And we were all pretty jacked to go. And I knew at that point in time, we were going to go in the summertime. I wanted to to make it a summer trip. I'd seen other guys make it out there and like Jim alluded to, we hit some really hot weather, but the wind was probably the nicest it could have been to us during the whole time we were out there this past summer. And we had a blast out there. And I think that was one of the nice keys that we had is just a little bit of Intel heading out into our trip out there this, uh, this past week and giving us kind of an idea of what to expect, what to look for areas to try. Um, obviously we'd never been out there on the ice before, but just kind of getting a lay of the land this summer. I don't know about you, Jim, but it just kind of helped put me at ease a little bit. I know Mike talked about not knowing what to expect, but at least we had a little bit of that intel going in. Specifically how to fish them. That, that, that learning that, that the chase game and, and how, you, how you went about getting them triggered. I think that, that was a big thing for me. No, like knowing that part of it, um, then it became more just about finding the fish for me once we once we got on the ice. Okay, Jim, yeah. so t- tell me a little bit more about that. That sounds intriguing um, because the way you described it, you made it sound like it's kind of not like some of the other fishing we do around here. Uh, is, that, is that because of the size of the lake, the water? Is it the fish? What is it? So I would say it's combo platter. It's the size, it's the depth, the size of the fish, the depth of the water you're fishing. And the fact that they don't, um, they don't have that uh, swim bladder. They, they burp. So they, they, they chase aggressively, um, basically in a nutshell. And, and uh, I'll, I'll say it this way. It wasn't exclusively this way, but for the most part it was once you, once you got a fish on, on live scope to say, Hey, recognize your bait 10 feet off the bottom and they turned and started coming to you. You just started reeling up about as fast as you could and they rock it up at you. This wasn't just jigging them up like a walleye or you're just making sure you stayed a foot or two above the crappie school and get the little bit more aggressive ones to come up and hit you. It was okay. The chase is on. 
Uh, summertime, we were up to 115 feet uh, in depth. And uh, this past week, it was 80, 85 at, at the deepest. And at times, they wouldn't hit you until you were two feet below the ice. Wow. Now, that sounds like a fun game to play. Very fun game, especially when uh, if, if they don't hit or, or if you're watching them on live scope, you can watch them swing and miss. It's such a it's such a fast deal. They swing, they'd miss, they'd come back, they swing, they'd miss again, they'd swim up another forty feet. And uh, I know Mike set the hook a couple times and hit the bottom of the ice. Um, but if they if they if you got if they couldn't if they couldn't get you, and you started dropping back down, they would race down with you all the way back down to the bottom and play the game again. And sometimes it, it, they'd, they'd eat, you'd get them on the first trip. Sometimes it took two, three, four before they'd eat. And it was, it was awesome. <laughs> did, did they ever hit it on the fall? So yeah, uh, rarely. I don't know. Anthony, did you catch one on the fall? I know I caught one on the fall and one sitting still when I'm, when my old, uh, my old bones decided to take a nappy nap. <laughs> yeah, I would say, I think I probably had one that hit on the fall. Um, but for the most part, they were all kind of chasing it up. And I'm not sure if when your bait is falling, it's more erratic and they can't kind of zone in on it and hit it on the fall as easy or what seems to be the deal. But I know for me, and I think for kind of the most of the rest of the guys, it seemed like once you, once they didn't engage on the way up and you started dropping it back down, you almost had to go all the way back down to the bottom and start the game over again. And, you know, you start reeling back up. And sometimes, like Jim said, they'd engage and they'd chase you back up. Sometimes they didn't want anything to do with it and they'd move on. And, you know, we could really tell the mood of the fish um, using live sonar versus the guys that were using just a traditional flasher. You know, they'd see the fish come in and in that deep of water, you got a pretty big cone angle with a flasher. Um, but we could just see the picture so much clearer with the, the live scope and the pan optics. I know Mike mentioned it in the episode. He, he was having one fish chase him. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere, a second one just came charging in from the side and hit him. And, you know, with a flasher, you'd really never see that. And I know the guys using a flasher, they'd see him disappear out of the cone angle. And I think like Jim was saying, that's when they would, they'd swing at the bait and they'd taken, they'd miss it. And then they'd get out of that cone angle, but on live scope, I mean, we watched that whole thing unfold and it was pretty crazy. Uh, we had one point where I had two or three lake trout on the screen at the same time, racing up, chasing almost like panfish. I mean, it was pretty exciting. Let's just step yeah. back for two seconds. Uh, some of the folks listening may not be familiar with Fort Peck. And so as we talk about Fort Peck, it's in Northeastern Montana Tell us just a little more about kind of the trip. Like, what's the body of water? What's the distance? And and what's out there when you arrived? So, Fort Peck, I guess, is more or less Lake Sakakawea. For, for people around here that would understand what that is. Um, it's big. It's deep. Um, it's crystal clear, too. That was one thing that took me by surprise is how how far you could actually see the fish uh, and, and watch your bait fall 40, 45 feet at, at times. So, but uh, yeah, the, the trip itself was it's about uh well, from where we're at, what a nine hour drive, something like that through, through North Dakota. And um, geez, I'm kind of at a loss for words on, on how to, how to describe this. It was like, it was a camping trip. It was a, it was a sleds tents and, and uh, let's go. I mean, that was more or less all that was for me. 
So you mentioned it's it, it, it's certain times of the year the ice may or may not be safe. Northeast Montana, this is a reservoir on the Missouri River. A little bit different climate than here. They don't quite get the frigid cold that we get. So when you got out there, was was there a lot of snow cover? Um, you said you camped. Did you camp on the ice? Where where did you camp? So we got there, there was minimal snow cover. Basically, once we got past Williston, there wasn't much for snow. Um, luckily for us that brought snowcats, they had gotten about a half an inch that stuck to the lake. So we weren't uh, we weren't having to deal with, uh, with, with hot sleds. And uh, that worked out. Um, but we camped. Uh, there's, a, there's a marina there, and they have uh, a lot of sites there with power for uh, mostly for for campers. But uh, we ended up pitching a Eskimo 850 and a 650. Um, Mike had his camper on his on the back of his truck, and then uh, his trailer that he brought his four wheelers out. Uh, a couple of guys just threw some cots up in there, and uh, and did it that way. But um, yeah, we we threw up the 850 and the 650, and a couple of cots with some pads on them, and a and a buddy heater, and away we went. That sounds like an adventure in and of itself, let alone all the lake trail you caught. Yeah. Yeah, it was definitely the, uh, you know, one of those trips where, you know, you talked about the weather out there. I mean, we were three, four weeks prior to this trip watching the weather, looking at the forecasts, you know, watching, you know, some of the posts on social media from the marina and the the lodges out there, just trying to get some intel. And, you know, we got a really cold snap kind of at the end of December there, beginning of January, that really put the the ice on the lake, the whole main lake froze over, which is kind of key to get things locked up so that it's not shifting around. And in a matter of about a week, I think they went from basically no ice to about a foot of ice. Um, And that's basically what we saw for ice conditions out there was, you know, 12 to 16 inches of ice, um, just a little bit of snow cover and, you know, watching where we were traveling with some of those breakers and pressure ridges just because of the sheer size of, of the lake. But it is one of those things, if you're planning a trip to Fort Peck, I mean, it's one of those things you have to just kind of watch the weather, watch the reports and really pay close attention to kind of what's going on out there. Cause it is, it's a completely different climate. I mean, I think we left here and it was like 15 below when we got out there and it was like 34 above. So it was quite the, the climate change. You mentioned breakers. And you guys talk about this on your show, right? Your your Fish Addictions TV show that's out on YouTube right now. If you guys, if you're listening to this and you've not watched that, you absolutely have to go watch it because it's, I mean, it's phenomenal, phenomenal viewing and the fish you guys catch. It's not just one or two trout. You guys laid the hammer down on these trout. Um, but anyway, the breakers. And that's what the thing that I thought was super cool. You guys engineered a portable bridge so to speak, you had to have known that was a thing that you were going to need before you even left home. Tell us a story about that. So I don't know, Anthony, if you know much about that, but uh, last year, Mike and Taylor basically said, all right, if we're going to go, this is how we're doing this. Uh, We're running into uh, kind of a buzzsaw of breakers, not knowing what's going on. It was going to be four-wheeler central, and we needed to to be able to be as mobile as possible without wasting a lot of time uh, trying to find the ends where you can drive a four-wheeler across them. So they decided uh, to to take a trip to the local hardware store and came home with a bunch of uh, 12-foot boards and some uh, plywood, and and they engineered the, the bridge. 
and they ended up throwing just a, a standard Eskimo hitch on it so that they could hook it to their further and drag it wherever they needed to go. And it ended up, uh, it ended up being the reason why we were able to get to where these more abundant and more aggressive fish were. Yeah. You used it. Did you use it more than once? Was there more than one uh, crack or heave that you were traversing? I think we crossed, what did we cross? We crossed four or five every day to get to where we needed to get. And for at least uh, the first one and the last one uh, were the worst of the, of the, all the breakers. Um, the other ones were, were pretty well still held together and, and uh, the four-wheelers were able to cross them relatively easily. Uh, the one we ended up having to drive basically to shore to get across it. Um, but it was, sort of on the way to where we were going. So it wasn't too far out of the way. We weren't going miles out of our way to get around this thing. So uh, as far as that went, yeah, the, the, the first one, and last one were the worst two that had actual decent separation where a, a bridge was completely necessary. Yeah. For anything with wheels, you know, anytime you get a crack that's at least six or eight inches wide or wider, you're not going to get across that with wheels. I know Jim and Taylor, um, they had their sleds out there and with a snowmobile, you can get around a little bit easier. You can, you know, if it's only a couple, you know, foot wide crack, two foot wide crack, you can kind of jump that with a snowmobile. If you're feeling comfortable with that type of activity, um, which I know those guys did a couple of times when we got the bridge out of the way, but, uh, having wheels, you kind of almost need to have something. Uh, we had talked about bringing, you know, a set of aluminum ramps for four wheelers, you know, just to lay across the crack. And, and like Jim talked about that bridge that Mike and Taylor built was really a brainchild of planning our trip for last year with those ice conditions being as bad as they were. We knew we were going to need something. And with knowing going out there this year, that there's the possibility to run into these types of pressure ridges and cracks that, you know, we brought it along and like Jim said, it, it saved us a lot of travel time in not having to drive around and find good places to cross. We could find a, a mediocre place to cross and put the bridge across and everybody was able to get across the breaker and, you know, save us time and getting to and from where we went. I, the first day we started about two, three miles from where we were staying and we ended up being, I would say about nine miles from where we started uh, the day is kind of where we ended up and fished, you know, anywhere from there in between um, throughout the, the trip. So that's quite a, that's quite a long range to be out away from home base, but uh, travel sounds like it was pretty good with the exception of those cracks and, and breakers that you had out there. Let's shift gears again a little bit and talk about presentation. So I know you, you guys were using some pretty stout rods, ice rods, um, what was your setup? What line, what lures were you using to, to catch these trout? So I had a 36 medium heavy. Um, I threw a, a C30 Okuma reel on, uh, with 10 pound braid. Uh, I believe the mistake I made, uh, was not having a uni to uni floral leader. I went with a, with a barrel swivel and a foot, foot and a half a liter. And it took me, it took me a little bit longer to get into the fish. And with the water clarity out there, I think that was a hindrance to me. Everybody else had, you know, longer leaders and, and were able to get into them a lot faster than I was and not have to, they were, they were able to trigger some less aggressive fish where I needed that. I needed the home run fish to, to eat on my stuff for, for the first, uh, day, day and a half before I 
made the change. And uh, I believe that actually helped me be a little bit more successful towards uh, towards the end of the trip. Um, as far as uh, jigs, I was using a three-quarter ounce uh, jig head with a five and a half inch paddle tail for the most part. And, uh, uh, hair jig with a, with a four inch paddle tail on it really did it, did the trick too. Um, I know Taylor switched up to a bigger, um, a bigger tube jig and was successful on that. Um, uh, what else? Well, Mike used some blade bait. He had some blade bait on that worked for like four or five straight fish really quick. And then, uh, uh, he ended up having to switch out to something different and it was kind of a, it was kind of a, if you, if you had one thing that was working for a little while and it stopped working, you could switch it out to one of these other presentations. I know on the show, Mike, uh, Mike gave a rundown of four or five different options, um, to, to have out there and, and you kind of cycled through them as you went and, uh, it definitely, definitely helped. Yeah, you could definitely read the mood of the fish, you know, if they started to, you know, not chase as far up the water column, if they weren't chasing as fast, you know, that was the time where we needed to switch. I'd say for, you know, probably 70% of the fish we caught were probably on either a jig and a paddle tail or a hair jig and a paddle tail or some form of plastic. Um, I would say that probably caught the most of the fish that we caught out there. As Jim mentioned, you know, blade baits, tubes. I know there was a few that were caught on spoons. Um, it seemed like some of those smaller presentations, I know I even downsized to like a three and a half inch paddle tail a couple times. And when those fish maybe turned a little bit more negative, you could still pick off one or two with a little smaller presentation. And I think that was kind of key to, to picking up some more fish throughout the day when we weren't in kind of one of those bite windows. It seemed like when we first got to a spot, whoever was kind of the first one down seemed to get bit almost instantly. That most aggressive fish in the group was charging after your bait. And then you'd pick off a few of, of those aggressive fish and then it would kind of settle down. And that's why we kind of kept moving, trying different spots and, you know, kind of had to just play that game, you know, the, the leapfrog game, if we, if you would say, and, you know, move down the shoreline, if somebody got onto some fish, we'd kind of shout out or maybe give a phone call if we were a little further away to the other guys and be like, Hey, we're on some fish. And, you know, that was kind of a double-edged sword too. And I maybe let Jim comment on it too, but it seemed like anytime there was two or three guys at a spot, the fish were more aggressive, but when we got to having seven, eight, nine guys that were in the crew all on a spot, seemed like that pressure kind of slowed things down a little bit. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, I know I've said it too many times and just within our little group talking about it, but I think those fish educated pretty quick. Um, and I, I wonder sometimes if, if we didn't have too many options down them down there that they almost got a little bit, uh, you know, antsy about it, or I guess, anxious which one do i eat i'm not eating any of them i'm out these these don't look right i'm, I'm gone you know we weren't close enough to be a, a school of a, a school of shad but uh but we were close enough to where we could throw them off their game a little bit um but yeah whenever it seemed you know we had kind of an issue in the summer too you know three lines in the boat didn't seem to pan out as well as just put two down and two down everybody was eating yeah. And we always come up with theories, right? Every fishing is always a theory. Um, you know, we kind of came up with this in the boat in the summer that, you know, there was two lines on one side and one line on the other. And the guy with one line on the side of the boat was getting bit. And we don't know if it was just the trout keying on maybe that one lone bait 
and that's why they were attacking that bait and not the one where there was two on the other side or what the what the theory that we finally settled on but it definitely seemed like once we got a lot of pressure on a spot or you know had multiple options or presentations i don't know if it got the trout thrown off a little bit or what it was but you know something to keep in mind if you're if you're planning a trip or heading out there is you know, if you got a bigger group, maybe try and stay spread out a little bit and not put too much pressure on the fish on, on a certain spot. So you guys talked about being in deep water. You talked about these fish being out there in the summer, even deeper, but, but now in the wintertime, you were, you were still in deep water. Are you targeting structure? Are you targeting a certain depth range? What are you looking for as you go down the lake? You mentioned you, you move down the shoreline. Is it just as simple as just move down 200 yards or are you actually keying in on something in those spots you're targeting uh we're keying in on certain certain humps certain you know summertime we're looking for the holes off of off of humps you know saddles uh you know if you had some tight contours on a on a you know like a deeper like a like a cliff type drop off uh in the summertime we were looking for the deeper water on you know this last week we were looking for the top side of that you know, we wanted to be on top of the hump. If there was a little bit of a, a shelf just off the side of the hump, you got on that shelf and got off on the edge of that. Because, like I said, the water was so clear out there that even if they're not on top of that that little nipple, we'll call it, um, they, they they might be in. You know, if you're in 60 feet, they might be swimming around down in 75, 80 off the side, but they, you know, they're looking straight up and they see you they're going to scream up that, that hillside, if you will, and, uh, and find your bait. Um, I don't know, and if you want to talk a little bit more about that, but we, we basically just all the structure, every piece of structure that we could find similar to two humps and hills and holes was, was kind of the game plan. And, and, uh, you know, we, we ended up finding really good fish on top of most of the stuff we were looking at. Yeah, I mean, if you look at Fort Peck on a map, I mean, it, it's a big flooded reservoir. You look at the shoreline, it's all basically points and fingers, and all of that just looks good. And, you know, I think a person could almost fish anywhere out there in the wintertime. And for us, the depth that worked was like that 45, you know, 50 feet down to probably 85 was kind of the deepest. You know, we did try a couple spots that were deeper, but, you know, that 30-foot range from, say, 50 to 80 I think you could go anywhere along the shoreline, anywhere along a hump or a point. Um, if you were fishing in that depth, you had the potential to find fish. The The key for us was trying to find areas that were maybe a little bit bigger and were unpressured, didn't have any holes drilled on them, you know, spots that maybe hadn't been fished yet. And, you know, that's where we found the larger schools of fish. Um, and we actually found some bait in those areas too. We were able to see that on the, the live sonar and on the, the flashers as well. You'd see a little blip of some bait going through. And, you know, I think that really was what the key for us was. We found a school of bait. We found fish that were keying on that bait and was able to, you know, have a really good trip and be successful. But I think the key is move around. If you're not marking fish, um, you know, in the first probably 15 minutes or so, um, there's probably not fish there. They'll move around, get, you know, make, I would say make bigger moves, you know, four or 500 yards at a time until you maybe find some fish and then maybe kind of hone in on that piece of structure and kind of 
kind of rip it apart. I mean, we found a big piece of structure and we started on top and I think we fished everywhere from 40 feet to down to 80 feet. And it was probably a half mile by a half mile that we were fishing in an area. A lot of, um, a lot of techniques you'd use elsewhere, but they are unique. I would imagine in that kind of a, a contour, you know, with the reservoir, with those steep, deep, uh, depths within, were you, were you guys closer to the dam down at the bottom end of the reservoir? Cause that reservoir is what a hundred miles long. I mean, it's, it's huge, maybe more. I, I'm not hundred percent familiar with the geography out there. Or were you further up the lake? So yeah, the dam is on the north end of the lake up by the town of Fort Peck. Um, that's where we basically, that's where our base camp was, was in a Fort Peck Marina. And then we ventured from there. Um, you know, if people are familiar with the lake, there's York Island. Um, that's a piece of structure that a lot of people fish. There's the dam um, that a lot of people fish as well. Um, I know people catch fish down there. And then there's basically a couple of arms that go off on the reservoir. Um, you got the dry arm, you got the main channel that heads down to kind of the, the Southwest. And, you know, I think, like I mentioned, you could kind of decipher whichever direction you wanted to go. We kind of went the same direction the the two and a half days we were there fishing just kind of because we didn't want to overwhelm ourselves with the amount of structure. And once we kind of found a good spot, we, we kind of keyed in on that area. But yeah, there's, I think there's a lot of fish out there. There's a lot of places for them fish to hide. And I think the key is just kind of moving until you, you land on something. Okay. So guys, uh, let's wrap it up here, but I want to hear your favorite memory from the trip. Um, did Jim, I'll let you go first, but I don't know if it was a, a fish, a, a funny moment, whatever it was, just give us your favorite memory of the whole trip. So favorite memory. Put me on the spot. Honestly, honestly, the camping part in the fire that we had, uh, on our last night, um, I'm, I'm, huge into camping grew up camping tenting um we have campfires every weekend in the summer um i i have a fire pit in my backyard that i use about half the winter this winter i haven't gotten to use it much because of the snow or whatever but um i love that aspect of it just sitting around having a bs having a couple pops um and and on a trip like that when you're out there with your boys and and uh and you're just reliving the day um especially since we did split up a little bit more um it wasn't everybody clomping on each other's stories it was everybody had their own stories because you know you were several hundred yards apart most of the day so you got to tell your tale and you got to tell you got to tell your own fish story and you got to tell it how you wanted to so uh you know the camera the camera's gonna correct some of them but <laughs> but uh that for me that's that's more of it i mean the fish catch is awesome um the the experience of the whole the whole thing is is fantastic and and i hope that it becomes a uh, summer and winter uh regular deal for us um but for me it's it's that it's to stand around with a pop in your hand having a bs and and it's just that's just fantastic around a fire it's great anthony how about you yeah, I would echo Jim's comments on the the camping part, the camaraderie. I mean, that was the fun. We had we deemed it trout camp, right? We we camped, we had food, we had stories. I mean, it was it was a great time that added to the atmosphere. As far as the fishing goes for me, uh, I got kind of two. The first one's quick. Um we were all kind of in an area and Mike had moved off to his to himself to try a spot and 
all of a sudden you heard him yelling for the camera guy and he's throwing his arms up in the air. And we thought that like he lost a big fish or something. Well, here we come to find out he had caught like three fish in a matter of like five minutes. And he was just excited and trying to capture it all on video. And a part of that's in the episode. So you'll have to check that out. And the other, I could say probably my favorite memory of the trip was uh, Chris Rothmeyer and I, we, we uh, stumbled on a little spot kind of in the afternoon. We slid off where we had been fishing and, we drilled a couple holes and I put my live scope down and I actually saw two fish on the bottom as I put it down. So I'm like, okay, game on, right? There's fish here. And I think in the matter of about 15 minutes, we put six or seven lake trout on top of the ice. And it was just the two of us. So we're scrambling to help each other. And, you know, he'd have one on and I'm marking two or three. So I don't want to go help him pull the fish out of his hole. Cause I want to catch one that's below me. And it was kind of pandemonium for a little bit. And then the other guys kind of, we told them that we were on some fish and they came over and, you know, we all caught some fish and things slowed down. We moved a little bit and then they got into them again. So, I mean, that was probably the, my favorite part of the trip was that, you know, that short window where we got on those fish. And like I said, they were flying up and down on the screen. And I just remember um, seeing Chris, he's like, I got four of them down there. And he's like, it was pretty crazy. He caught one and there's still three more below him. So it was kind of pandemonium for a little bit. That's an awesome story. Well, and you got you, me, and Taylor are the seasoned veterans, having all been there once, and nobody else had experienced anything like this. So we were, they, everybody was leaning on us for what do, what do we do? What do, how do, how this? Well, we we watched videos, we saw, we we reading reports or whatever else, and they're asking us like we're the grizzly old veterans that have been there eight thousand times, and we were here six months ago, and uh, it was completely different. <laughs> but yeah, I think you know, even to Jim's point, you know get the information, watch the videos. There's a lot of YouTube videos out there now. I mean, Fort Peck is starting to become a spot on the map. A lot more people know about it. I mean, not that it, it's, you know, something new. I know people have been going out there for several years. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of information out there on you know, what to do, where to go, talk to the, the bait shops, Fort Peck Marina. I know Scott Collingsworth out there is really, you know, eager to give people info and point you in the right direction. Um, he was a big help for us when we were out there. Um, Lake Ridge Lodge, they've got information out there. Um, they keep up to date on social media, give them a call. They're always, you know, happy to, to lend a helping hand. And, you know, if you, if you're heading out there and have questions, I mean, shoot them over to the fish addictions page. I know, Mike and Thor, myself, and the other guys were always happy to provide some comments on, you know, what to look for, things to do, because from day to day, I mean, we even saw it when we were out there, things change a lot. Um, fish might not be where they were the day before. And, you know, there's not really any secrets out there. It's just a matter of putting in the work, putting in the time and, and getting on the fish. Jim, anything uh, before we part ways for the night, um, you know, any last closing remarks on the the trip? I know you said you hope it becomes a a biannual thing where we're doing it uh, twice a year and getting out there. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, <clears throat> I, uh, I guess for me that that style of fishing, that 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 style of um, I guess trip with the camping, with you know the primitive stuff we did in the summertime, the uh, you know the way we did it this winter, doing the ice camping, or not, I guess the winter camping, not so much the ice camping, but um, I don't know, man. I loved it. I, I, I guess I don't even know what else to say. I just, I had a blast. Um, that's, that's my speed. That's 100% my speed. If I caught three fish in a day, I was happy. I was good. I did, you know, I kept saying right away in the morning, I just want one, just give me one and we'll go from there. 
And, uh, and you know, I, aside from, aside from the one that, uh, that ended up sending my rod for a ride, uh, the, <laughs> my worst moment of the trip, um, aside from that, I, I had a ball and I, I would, I would do this. I would do this every year. It was, it was fantastic. Yeah. I think it's great. I mean, we having never been out there in the wintertime, didn't know what to expect. And I think going out there, knowing that, you know, kind of tempering our expectations, you know, if we get into a couple fish, great. If we get into a lot, that's just icing on the cake, but, you know, go out there with, you know, maybe lower expectations. And then, you know, when you get into them, you'll, you'll really appreciate it. Um, because yeah, it can change. I think for us to, you know, we had, we had our finger on the pin. If the weather was going to be bad, we were going to pull the plug and not go. And we dealt with some weather on the way out. Um, we had some wind and crazy conditions and, you know, it's a big open reservoir out there. You get some crazy wind and it can get ugly real fast, but, you know, maybe having the flexibility to, to know when to go, when not to go, um, you know, it's long ways to go to drive out there to, to not enjoy being out on the ice. And we got blessed with some pretty awesome weather when we were out there, both in the summer and in the winter. And, you know, hopefully that trend continues, um, knock on some wood here and, and hope for that. But again, Jim, thanks for joining us. I know, uh, it was fun for me to kind of relive it again through your stories. And I'm sure we'll be telling these stories for, for years to come. But uh, again, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks to, to Eskimo for giving us the opportunity to uh, talk to you all and all the listeners on Shack Talk here. And until we get uh, together again, get out on the ice, have some fun, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>